We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded as the first storytellers, the first communities, and the first creators of Australian culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore, and you're listening to Season 4 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. In this episode, Sally Sue is speaking with Registered Architect and Regional Managing Principal at HDR Architects, Kate Callenshaw. Kate speaks about her work at HDR as a global practice and how she enables the teams in her practice to excel. Kate also talks about how the convergence of health, education, science, research and innovation has culminated in the emergence of innovation precincts that appear to be springing up all over the world. Let's jump in. So, welcome, Kate. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? <laughs> good, good, good. Thanks for joining us on Hearing Architecture. So, allow me to introduce you to our listeners today, where I want to tell everyone that Kate is the Regional Managing Principal of HDR, globally, and uh, based in Sydney. And you're a registered architect in New South Wales. Yes. A fellow at the Institute, a fellow Institute of Architects here. And you are part of the chapter chair for Gender Equity Task Force. Right. And really now in your latest role, part of the editorial team of the Architecture Bulletin. That's right. (laughs) Can you tell us a bit more about what you do day to day? Share with our audience, give a bit of background. Um, Yeah, absolutely. So as you mentioned, HDR is a global practice and our head office is in, in the U.S., so my, my role is really about almost being a conduit between the, the local practice and, and the global practice. And, and what, that, what that really means is bringing together local and global expertise to deliver for our clients here near Australia. And so that, that, is a, that is a big part of my role is, is bringing those two parts of the business together. And then the other, the other two parts of my role are working with and delivering for our clients and also working with our team to develop and grow the team, mentor, coach, and develop career paths for everyone here in the Australian practice. That's amazing. Well, hopefully we can unpack each of those topics that you mentioned because I think it's a very interesting uh, conversation to have because I think we often ask what is the role of the architect and how important it is for us to participate in our community. And I think we'd like to think we change cities, change communities. I think. Maybe we can start off with you as a registered architect on your experience and leading up to your role now here in HDR. Yeah, great. So I studied at the University of Sydney and worked initially in Sydney and that was actually a really exciting time to graduate in the, in the mid-90s. It was just after Sydney had been awarded the Olympics and so we came, we're coming out of the recession that we had to have in the 90s towards a, a boom and so most of my graduating class came out and into projects that were being driven by Olympic infrastructure. So one of my first projects was in a, a joint venture team doing the design for the, the showground site out at the Olympics. And the, the main you know, thrust behind that was designing for Olympic facilities that then would be transformed into the new showground in the post-Olympic era. So... That was a, a, a very interesting time to graduate and, and work on kind of one, once in a career type projects. At the conclusion of that sort of phase, I actually worked, went, moved to Melbourne. So I 
you know, been interested in working in Melbourne. You know, it's always been interesting architecturally. You know, there's great sort of architectural and design culture down there. So I moved to Melbourne and I, I worked with Batsmart Melbourne. Spent three years there and I think you know, that was an incredible experience to see how embedded Batsmart was in the growth of Melbourne as a city. And then following that, that period, I actually moved to, to Canberra and, and that was for family, family reasons. And again, another very interesting experience to, to work in a city that's so driven by government projects and, and government sort of infrastructure. You know, most of the population at that time worked for the government and that drove certain policy and approaches to projects. And that was my first experience in, in running an office. So I, I ran the, the office in, in Canberra for mm-hmm. a national practice, which so we went from kind of three or four people up to, to 10, I think, in about a couple of years' time. After that was when I started having my, my kids and so I wanted to move back to Sydney to be closer to my family. And that was that was probably the time when I really started to focus on more the operational side of, of architecture. You know, 20 years ago, we didn't have remote work or teams, so it's a bit harder to work remotely or part-time. So moving into operational side of practice was, was, a, was a career path that a lot of women did take at that time, and, and that's what took me back to Bates Mark for the second time when I rejoined, rejoined Sydney Studio in a business development and an operational role. And it's from Batesmart that I went to HDR to take the regional management principal role for Australia. Excellent. Because I think what's really good here is it seems like a non-linear pathway, but really every step along the way, it looks like you've gathered extra skills. That's possibly not what most people think architects do, but I think it's set yourself up to now really hone in on that at HDR where I see you and your team there working on very large infrastructural projects that have the social aspect to it. It is, you know, at times health and education driven. Can you tell us a bit more on how you've been able to translate that skill set and make a difference in the kind of projects you're working on now? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think most architects would say their their core capability as design. But unfortunately, a lot of the job of architecture is about all the things around design and a lot of that is to do with managing business, managing a team, managing clients and even, you know, managing, you know, your own staff and mentoring, etc. So I think the approach that I take towards managing operations for HDR is that we want all of that side of business to be as efficient and as streamlined as possible to create more space for architects to do what they do well, which is is design and design at every stage of the project. So you know, obviously the front end of design we're very familiar with, but that, that trickles through all stages of projects. And so that's really what I see my role as being is, is taking all that noise away and creating space for, for our teams to do what they're best at. Amazing, because I think this is great to touch on and remind ourselves that, that there's so much to putting an office together, running it. And then if we take it to a different scale, let's say on a complex public project, that same kind of engagement happens at a stakeholder level, a clientele as well. Do you want to kind of compare how that is and how that has shaped your design ethos and the way you approach projects? Yeah, I think, yeah, when you come from private sector projects, it's very much about delivering the commercial outcome for your client and usually 
as quickly as possible, that they're not really the drivers so much in, in public sector projects. So consultation is, is a very, very big part of private sector projects and particularly large projects like hospitals. So managing that user group engagement process is, is, a, is really probably one of the most important parts of, of all of our projects. And not, not only engaging, but managing the whole change process and the iterative process of, that comes from stakeholder engagement smoothly and successfully so that when, when your client walks into that operating theatre at the end of the end of the, the project, they're like, yep, this is exactly exactly what I wanted. You don't want people to say the tap should be over there, not next to the wall. You want everyone to walk in and go, yep, that's exactly what I said I want. And managing that change process and communication process is a really, really big part of our projects. Because I think really what you're touching on is the measurement of success is slightly different. And I think in architecture, like you said at the beginning, we're often defaulting into what design is. Mm-hmm. And in this case, a successful design seems to be if it's highly functional and even invisible in that sense where, yeah. So I think looping back, you referenced the hospital project. And I think it's great timing because this year we saw the launch of the design guide for health. Mm-hmm. And uh, congratulations on featuring on that because yeah. HCI clearly is doing really, really good projects there. Could you reference that and possibly link it to how unique it is and how different it is compared to all the other projects you've done and experienced and what unique kind of aspects are there for HDR? Well, hospitals are a very unique topology and, you know, I think first of all, they're generally very big projects and, you know, so a $500 million hospital is not a big hospital, but 500 million value in any other typology would be very, very large projects. So, so they do tend to be large, expensive projects, and they do tend to be projects that are conceived, designed, and delivered over a very long period of time. So you do always have to have your mind on the future because it could be 10 years from the beginning of a project to the when it's finally completed. But I think Yes, hospitals have traditionally been very programmatically driven and that that certainly is still their primary function. But I think documents like the Good Design Guide and and just generally lessons that we've been learning over the last few years have sort of changed the way we think about hospitals to being less of the the closed box system to being more of an, an, an open system. And that is manifested in a lot of different ways. So, you know, from being a good neighbour architecturally in terms of, scale and materiality and responding more sympathetically to the context in which the project sits through to potentially sharing facilities with the neighbourhood, so gardens or meeting spaces being available for use outside of normal hospital hours, through to how the other people that use the hospital staff, which we traditionally haven't really thought about that much, what, what is their quality of life in a hospital? They spend you know, a long time in their spaces and traditionally their amenity has not been front of mind. But I think we particularly learned lessons through the pandemic and, and saw how hard our frontline workers work and that, that has really kind of made that much more front of mind now, both for clients and for architects. And I think the other, the other overlay that's, that's sort of changing the nature of, of healthcare and how it's delivered also come out of the pandemic and that that's the the hybrid digital and face-to-face method of delivering care so I think we're increasingly thinking about how do those 
those two modes intersect the sort of self-care and self-reporting through apps and the like and, and the um, tele, telehealth, how does that interface with the physical need of a hospital and how do you get the optimum balance between those two modes of care? Actually, that's a great way to put it because it helps us now link it to all the good things you just talked about there where being a good neighbour, the environment's important, that kind of porous and hybrid aspect of it to allow people to engage with it so it's not so isolated as an institution because I think whether we like it or not, as we talk about it sometimes, we'll have some sort of experience with the hospital and hopefully it's all for the good and the joy, let's say, for both and there are aspects of other life stages where you may have to then come back again. And and I say that now because I think we also see a great importance in the equaling out. So I think telehealth has been transformative, mm-hmm. which means for those that couldn't travel to get care has now had that ability to possibly access that. Um, knowledge has been shared as well as I think as you t- we talk about the government architect, there's a good aspect of connecting with country that's mm-hmm. been brought in. And I think maybe we'll let you reference a few examples that might not be the same one on how that has transformed the way you approach healthcare design. Yeah, I think connecting with country it has and designing for country has has impacted healthcare in, in, in a number of different ways. I think firstly, it's the designing for country overlay, which is not unique to health, but is certainly something that we're experiencing on all of our projects, given the, the size and scale and nature of the projects. So pretty much every one of our health projects now, we have a walking country process. There's a you know a very in-depth sort of exploration of First Nations interpretation of that that location and the implications that has on the design of whatever facility we're, we're looking at. And particularly that is very dominant in, in the last planning phases. So we're working on a project at the moment, Rouse Hill Hospital, where that was very much part of the process. We walked country with the traditional owners. We learned about their interpretation of the land and those learnings then were implemented and integrated into our master planning approach for the hospital. And that only made it, you know, a richer and more, and actually more climate and site-specific mm-hmm. response. And then I think the other overlay that we're seeing often, and this is not unique to Australia, certainly seeing this in, in projects in New Zealand and mm-hmm. also our, our Canadian colleagues are experiencing this also, is being mindful of the First Nations peoples and how they experience certain life events that you traditionally experience in hospitals. So, you know, birth and death are very, you know, significant parts of our our life experience and taking into account how other cultures would like to experience those events certainly is shaping how we design hospitals and, you know, birth, birthing suites, mortuary, they are all being influenced by how, how the First Nations people from that area would experience those traditionally. Often that means having them on the ground floor so that so that their family and friends can, can be able to gather around the space and share in the birth or death of with their with their family. Mm, that's very good because I think so much to talk about here where the very key topics of being empathetic inclusive and really I think we are uh, every time we do consultation it's important to even begin to think about healing and all that knowledge passing on and I think broadening in that discussion HDR also works on a lot of education on projects as well how are they similar and different and what approach do you take normally on these again very important projects that shape communities 
Well, I think the interesting difference with education is that often generations have connection to that facility mm-hmm. and you, you experience an educational facility over a long period of time in a way that you don't do with a hospital. So you know, so we've done some work for West, Western Sydney University and, and a project we've just completed for them out at Bankstown, mm-hmm. their vertical campus out there. So the, the student body in that university has had multiple generations go go through that university and they have a tradition of a wall of hands so they had a they have a tradition where each student as they graduated through their indigenous intake would leave a handprint on the wall as they graduated and so in the old facility this was a brick wall and so for the new facility we reimagined that in in steel and so Mm -hmm. that's a, a big part of the new facility is is that memory and it's also able to be added to by future generations of graduating Indigenous students as they as they pass through Western Sydney University. So I think there's you know, I think we experience educational facilities in a different way. Mm-hmm. But the fundamentals of, of walking country and designing for country are, are very similar as they would be for any project. That's amazing because I think as we talk about shaping communities with that, it's all the little bits and pieces in there as architects as we curate and put it together mm-hmm. that kind of lives past just uh, you know the opening of the building and, and just even physical kind of materials. So I think that then brings around here where I think it's amazing to share and hear from you on how HDR approach projects and you have a unique position because you once talked about where HDR is not just a commercial firm and it's because of the talent and the pool of the talent that you pull together. And I think do you want to share with our listeners on that unique edge where you cut across so many disciplines, you have the advantage of building a specific tailored team for the right project? Yeah, look, I, I never cease to be amazed by how many experts we have at HDR and you have a problem anywhere, somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in, in HDR, someone will, will be able to solve that problem for you. And I think that's a real, that is a real strength of, of the business and that is the real point of difference that we can bring to projects. But we've got to that point because we are very cognizant that, you know, projects are made up of a lot of different skills and it's important to equally nurture all of those skills. So, so we have you know, very specific career path development opportunities for people who, who are subject matter experts in what they do, whether that's laboratory planning or health planning or sustainable design. There's a, a curated pathway for that. There's you know, design leadership is another pathway. Project delivery is another pathway. So there's a lot of there's a recognition that that all of those streams have their own particular career development requirements and we've got career development pathways around all of those. But I think it is that we can then bring all of those experts together on projects that, that can sort of create some really unique opportunities. Mm, I think because I, I find it fascinating because it's such a privilege to be able to access them in-house. <laughs> well, so we work with a lot of collaborators and have to ring them and then booking their time. And I think it brings back to the overarching question is that role of the architect. I think if we rehash that, HDL is able to offer different opportunities to um, architects of different backgrounds or have a different interest in it. Could you give a few more examples of how that allows for career growth at different stages without having to follow a linear pathway because I think in in other kind of episodes we often talk about what is that career pathway, how do we allow career fulfilment 
And, you know, is it always about management? It may not be. And if you're part of an organisation that's so full of, you know, diverse backgrounds, how does that differ from all the other offices you've previously worked at or ones you work with? Well, I think the scale definitely helps. Mm-hmm. You know, so so having, you know, 2,000 architects and 500 offices, that that kind of scale creates opportunities for specialisation that, that a smaller practice doesn't. And so I think that you do need that, that breadth to be able to specialise and you also need really good communication and I think that's another, you know, that's that's another attribute that's been behind the success of, of working in this way is that there's a huge amount of knowledge sharing that goes on. So that's why how you can find an expert when you need them. You know, so there's no no benefit in having an expert if you don't know that they're, you know, sitting in an office in Los Angeles. You, you need to know to be able to pick up the phone and talk to that person. <laughs> so I think it's been a, a great strength that despite the size there's really strong communication and cross-pollination between offices that's allowed that specialisation to be deployed where, where it's needed. So that they are kind of attributes that you don't get in a practice that's not of that scale. But equally, it is also that communication that allows people to develop those career paths because if you didn't, if you didn't have those role models and those mentors, you wouldn't be able to develop those specialised career paths in the same way. No, I think it's commendable to hear you describe that because I think, you know, sometimes we work with very large engineering houses and, you know, they offer integrated services, but let's just say uh, more often than not we hear of the disciplines not talking to each other, yeah. <laughs> which slightly brings disappointment. But, you know, I think it's commendable you, you're working on that and definitely have succeeded because that's what you're able to now offer your clients and bring the best for the project because I really want to take this opportunity to commend you and HDR on really embracing diversity and gender equality because yeah. we've seen you promote team members of various levels. I think do you want to touch a bit more on that and how that really reshapes, you know, or evolves the culture at HDR for you? Yeah. I mean, you know, we touched on the fact that I've been part of the Gender Equity Task Force for quite a long time and, and so I, I guess my awareness around these issues was, was a heightened but I think that's dovetailed neatly into the sectors that we work in you know healthcare and education tend to favor more diverse client groups and that's what and we've reflected that in our own teams and the other you know factor that we've also touched on is the high level of user engagement so you know a very deep cross-section of our team will be talking to clients every day and, and, and engaging with them deeply and so it's important, you know, for them to be, for that role for them to be celebrated. And so that's really what we do is celebrate all of the people in, in our teams, but particularly those who engage with, with our users on a regular basis. But given the nature of our work, that, that's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's amazing. Because I think, yeah, it's, it's not always an opportunity given to all uh, in our industry. And I think it's always commendable when somebody actually fosters leaders across all levels because he gives everyone an opportunity, a growth kind of, you know, aspect to it. With that then, if we look back to our original question here on the value of our work, how do you articulate that to, to projects that are so complex that it's hard to imagine why what we do is important because there are so many other professionals also lining up to give advice? Well, I think 
Working in an integrated architecture and engineering practice, I think it's really heightened my appreciation for the role that architects have as lead consultant. And we really do have a unique skill of bringing together a wide range of views and disciplines and influences on projects. And I think that that really is our, our superpower you know, to be able to do that. But I think there's been a shift in the last few years where there's been a heightened understanding of the fact that what projects we work on in particular are major pieces of social infrastructure and they, they need to operate seamlessly, as we've talked about with hospitals, but they can also be real catalysts and drivers of the communities and precincts in which they sit. And so I think as architects of those types of projects, it's really been a dawning of a realisation that our role is not just about designing that facility, it's also designing its impact on the wider community and I think that has not only improved the quality of the project but also improved the quality of the whole community that it serves. Excellent because I think sometimes some of these topologies may be seen as only needing to be functional but what you talked about is that inherent you know greater impact that's scalable across where I think it gives people more joy to interface with it so it's not just a stage of life education where you go in and out but that can still be somewhere where you belong to for the distant future, and if not further. And yeah. hospitals is not somewhere that you just go in and out, or hopefully not just avoid as well. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's transformative. So I think as we conclude then, I think, do you want to share with our audience on some of the areas that uh, is still in progress that you want to see more opportunities in, whether it's in what the health guidelines are trying to achieve, the design? for health or, or the way we, we approach um, public projects? Well, I think we've still got a long way to go in achieving sustainability goals and that's certainly something that we're passionate about and we've developed a lot of a lot of tools around, which is the design tool being one of them. So I think, you know, maybe our clients need to be a little bit braver about embracing some simple things that, that can really make a, a massive difference. And some of the research that, that we've done globally suggests that you know, this simply being able to open a window in a hospital bedroom and use natural ventilation and not rely on air conditioning can have a dramatic effect on the energy use of that hospital. So I think I think we could be a bit braver in embracing some very simple strategies that could make a huge difference to the impact on the environment of the projects that we design. That's great because I think... Uh, Thanks to the pandemic, I don't want to repeat too much. But I think it's it's given us new lenses to approach uh, many of our projects where the standard we thought was once okay is no longer as good. And I no. think it allows us to be a bit more generous with what we offer. And I think it might be a bit harder because we totally appreciate how complex some of these big projects are. It's not to be understated on what it takes to bring a community, a new educational facility or a new hospital because... Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. They, they, are, they are complex projects and they are complex not only in their, their program but also in the role that they play in the community. Um, there has to be a huge amount of sensitivity around that and not underestimated. But I think, yeah, there's a huge amount of power for good in these projects mm, and I think well. we can just keep embracing embracing that. Correct, because yeah. I think the, the favourite part that you, of mine that you spoke about is is how do we share in these life stages that's a bit more sensitive because once upon a time we might have thought that it wasn't a right test, you know, it's something that we keep inside our homes or, you know, in our private kind of community rather than in a public forum. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, it's, there's been a huge shift over the last five years in embracing diversity and, and in the design of this, you know, all sorts of facilities and, and I think it's only made them better and hopefully that, that trend will continue. Yeah. Thanks, Kate. I really appreciate your time today. No worries. Thanks, Sally. Thank you. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest, registered architect Kate Callenshaw from HDR Architects. Thank you so much for sharing all of your stories about working in a global practice and the specific work you're involved in within your practice. We look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Our sponsor, Brickworks, also produce architecture podcasts hosted by Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. If you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. And the Imagine production team was Sally Sue and Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification or advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.